You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Almost four months since a Hamas terror attack and Israel's increasingly deadly response to it created a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. We still have startlingly few reports of what life on the ground in the region is actually like day to day. It's dangerous and it's deadly, we know that. Tens of thousands have been killed by Israel's army, thousands of them children. We see new numbers on that every day. Maybe that's part of the problem. It has been so difficult to get accounts from Gaza out of the territory, through the blockades, and into the global media, that this war has too often been reduced to numbers, not the people behind them. The one place where first-hand evidence on the ground from Gaza is available is social media. And those platforms have been so flooded with misinformation that even seasoned journalists have struggled to verify those accounts. But there have been a handful of people who were there in Gaza on October 7th and in the days that followed who have since escaped the region. They can explain what it's like to live, or try to, amid the daily horrors. And they can also explain what a lot of the information we are getting about Gaza gets wrong, or leaves out entirely. Today's guest is one of those people. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Louis Baudouin Larman is the communications manager for Palestine for Doctors Without Borders. Hello, Louis. Hi, Jordan. Thank you for finding some time for us. I'm sure this is a uh, chaotic time, to say the least. Thank you for having me. I know that you've written about this, um, and it it might not be uh, great to keep recalling it, but I think people uh, would like to understand what happened the day this all began, and you were already in Gaza on October 7th. Maybe just start by uh, telling us about that day and how, uh, as somebody who's worked there before, you knew it was different from other days. Um, yeah, of course. Um, this is what happened on that day on uh, October 7th. It was a Saturday, I remember. Uh, we were sleeping in a bit more than usual, but uh, it was quite early. I would say maybe like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. Uh, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden, all these whooshing sounds took over the, you know, the auditive space uh, around us. Uh, it was all the rockets going off. Uh, I didn't actually hear the first rockets go off because I was uh, very sound asleep. In my case, what woke me up is that after a lot of rockets took off, my head of mission uh, shared uh, this guest house with us in Gaza City. He woke up right away when uh, the first uh, rockets took off and he turned on this app that he had on his phone to turn off, to turn on um, an alarm that would go like, rear, rear, rear. And that's actually what woke me up. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I woke up from this alarm sound that he was blasting from his cell phone, uh, going around the guest house to wake everybody up, uh, th that's when I heard all the, the rockets going off. Uh, and it was just like this really loud sound, uh, like I said, like a whooshing sound, just like of uh, just like hundreds and hundreds of rockets taking off. Uh, and the way we knew that this was not normal, we figured this out quite quickly. 
uh, well, actually our experienced set of mission figured this out for us. He just noticed that there were a lot more rockets than you would normally have going off uh, from taking off from Gaza towards uh, Israel. And also he noticed that these rockets weren't aimed at the nearby kibbutzes or uh, communities uh, next to Gaza uh, in Israel. They were all headed north towards uh, Tel Aviv. And so essentially that showed us that there was something unusual going on, uh, much bigger than anything we had uh, been used to, at least uh, in our experience in Gaza. What do you do in that situation when you realize this is like nothing you'd encountered before? Um, in that case, I mean, we have a protocol at uh, Doctors That Borders. Uh, we all immediately went down to the safe room um, on the ground floor. Uh, it's a room that is closed and there are um, iron shutters to prevent any kind of like uh, debris or, you know, pieces of cement from explosions to kind of fly through the windows. We open the windows to uh, avoid them uh, from essentially exploding uh, with um, the, uh, the explosions from the strikes. The strikes didn't happen right away, but we figured that with so many rockets going towards Israel, right. the response would be quite strong and, uh, if not immediate, very swift. So the first uh, reflex was to gather everybody. So this is uh, a guest house in Gaza City, to give you an idea, in the Rimal neighborhood, uh, just uh, a stone throw away from um, Shifa uh, Hospital, which, is, uh, which was the biggest hospital at the time in Gaza City. And so this guest house has a lot of international staff for MSF who are either based in Gaza for you know, between uh, a month and uh, a year. And you have also people like me who were based uh, in Jerusalem and uh, visiting Gaza every now and then to visit the project to see uh, how everyone's doing and to kind of report essentially on MSF's work uh, in Gaza. And the days following October 7th, what did you and the team do? And I guess my question is, when you're in that kind of incredibly dangerous and, and overwhelming situation, like, where do you start um, helping with the needs that you're seeing? Like, how do you organize that kind of uh, that kind of effort? So that was actually a very complicated part of it all, particularly for my uh, medical colleagues, is that very quickly, essentially, uh, as international staff, there was not that much that we could do ourselves because we were stuck in this guest house. We had like a security protocol to follow. And also we didn't have a very much uh, medical supplies. So I had a lot of colleagues who really wanted to go to the hospital and help out, but it was just a whole different system from the one that they had been brought into Gaza under. And so this new protocol essentially didn't have space for these uh, foreign uh, medical staff. Now, our Palestinian staff, uh, you know, uh, MSF employs around 300 uh, people in total in Gaza, at least before the war. So the Palestinian staff, a lot of them chose to voluntarily go and work from the hospitals, at least until the situation was figured out. Eventually, after a month, uh, MSF was able to send in uh, international staff. But at first, in our situation, the main thing to do was stay put, gather information, try and... Uh, make sure that everybody's okay, uh, whether that's the international staff or the local staff. All this in an extremely difficult situation because communications kept on going on and off. There were communications blackout all the time. It's a very unusual, unprecedented uh, situation where just to make sure that one of the people that you work with is alive is in itself a whole uh, very complicated endeavor. A lot of what you do is is try to get information out and tell the world what's going on, right? I mean, as a as the communications person, that's a, a big part of your goal. 
How do you go about it uh, when communications are so unreliable? And what was that experience like for you and others to try and uh, accurately convey to people not on the ground what was happening? It was very complicated. We had to get a little bit creative. MSF has a lot of people all over Gaza working. And so the idea is always to try and figure out a way to get in touch with them and to get them to witness what they're seeing for us. Uh, And so regular phone calls often didn't work. WhatsApp calls uh, didn't work either. We had sad phones, but maybe the people we were trying to get in touch with didn't have sad phones. So usually most of the times the way that we did things is that we would send messages to uh, nurses, surgeons, uh, uh, any kind of medical staff, uh, drivers, anyone who's out there doing something in Gaza, being like, okay, I hope you're safe, first of all. But then also, um, okay, what are you doing? What are you seeing? Uh, And so this was what's a bit easier uh, with MSF, say, rather than in journalism, is that these are all people that we know and trust, right? They're our MSF staff. So well, when we know that they're at a certain hospital, say uh, Alada Hospital uh, in the north of Gaza, we can ask them, okay, what are you seeing? Uh, you know, what, what are your conditions? Uh, what are the, con- the conditions of the people that you're seeing uh, as patients? And so then uh, we send those texts and usually we work a lot with uh, WhatsApp audio notes. So they would send us, you know, whenever they would receive our message and have enough internet to send out a message, they would just record you know, a one, two, three, four minute long uh, message. Mm-hmm. And then we would kind of like analyze that, share it, uh, of course, uh, with um, the operations staff, but then also with the world by either sharing uh, voice notes with journalists or just synthesizing uh, the information and kind of uh, sending it out to the world however we could. There's a lot of people who can support us, who were able to support us outside of Gaza. So, you know, we would get one voice note or one text try and verify the information and then send out that information to explain to the world that, okay, uh, they are like every day, they were like more uh, dis- more people displaced within the enclave, that there were more shortages, first of um, medicine, uh, medical equipment, and then fuel, and then eventually water and food. Because it's an extremely unusual situation where no journalists are going in and no journalists are going out. So the usual communications pathways that you would have in a conflict uh, just don't really exist. Hmm. I, I met a journalist recently who had just arrived in uh, in Jerusalem and he was like, oh, I'm just going to try and, you know, make my way into Gaza. And he just didn't realize at all that Gaza is a 40 kilometers by 12 kilometers enclave that's fully surrounded by walls and essentially unbreachable, especially for a journalist. So essentially it falls down to those who are already inside to send out the information. And in my in my particular case, uh, it was also hard to do my own work because we were also focused on trying to stay safe. Right. You know, we were always on the move. Uh, we were displaced about four or five times. And so we're trying to do all these things, you know, also trying to stay safe and to keep uh, our Palestinian colleagues safe because you can't just like reveal everyone's location. Uh, there are a whole um, bunch of things that you have to take into account. I don't know if you would have seen much of it, um, given, you know, how difficult it was just to get information out. But I wonder what you uh, think of the reaction, I guess, to the information that gets out, that you've gone to such great lengths to verify that people have taken on such danger to get to you. um, And then it kind of goes out uh, into the wider media ecosystem and... uh, 
there's skepticism and doubt and nobody knows what to believe. Right. Um, so, I mean, while I was there, I didn't really have a good idea of what was going, like what, what the information ecosystem looked like uh, outside. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm outside and I see what's, uh, what's being said um, and how uh, the media is portraying the war, I feel like there's a lot of uh, airtime for Gaza and for the war. I do feel like it's hard for people to get a good idea of what exactly it's like for Gazans right now what the living conditions that they're in uh, are like. Because the the news cycle gets a little bit caught up on just reacting to every horrible event that happens. So we can get caught up on, you know, like a, a military incursion in uh, in one city or strikes on another city and just kind of get stuck into the cycle of uh, just um, enumerating deaths uh, mm-hmm. and things like that. Whereas it's really like uh, the, the war is affecting everything, every aspect of life. So right now in the south of Gaza, you have uh, 1.5 million uh, people displaced in an area that used to have 300,000 people and all the infrastructure is gone and there are shortages of everything. So, you know, all this overcrowdedness, it's creating shortages of everything, partly also because trucks, uh, not enough trucks are able to go into Gaza right now. But then people, because uh, they're all stuck together, are starting to uh, spread diseases, communicable diseases. So it's not just about, you know, fractures, open wounds, or other kind of war-related wounds. What should be simple diseases like diarrhea or the flu or fevers that people are spreading because of the terrible living conditions that they're stuck in as displaced people living in tents uh, all over each other. Uh, People don't have enough access to clean water, to uh, bathrooms. So that's also how all these things spread. And uh, in many cases lead to death simply because all the health structures are functioning only very partially and with not enough uh, medicine, not enough medical equipment. Uh, You know, for example, in Nasser Hospital, we have some colleagues uh, who have been working while there was an evacuation order around the hospital. Uh, Nasser Hospital is in uh, Khan Yunis uh, in the south of Gaza. Mm -hmm. And they reported, for example, that they don't have enough abdominal gaze, which is essentially a cloth that you use to, um, you know, get blood from people who are injured. They don't have enough abdominal gaze, so they're reusing the abdominal gaze. So they, they use it on one patient, and then they kind of drain it of the blood, they wash it, they sterilize it, and then they use it on another patient. Hmm. And it's all those things, you know, like it's just a, a series of problems that are compounded one by the other, all because of the war essentially happening on uh, this very uh, small perimeter and everybody's stuck in there. For me in particular right now, we talk a lot about the quality of water and I'm just always thinking about the latrines uh, because while we were there in Gaza, uh, it was already getting pretty bad in some of the camps that we were in, just a lot of people sharing toilets. And since then, since I left Gaza on November 1st, things have just gotten so much worse. Like so many more people have been displaced, you know, so many more, so much more infrastructure has been destroyed. You don't have sewage, you don't have like water pipes, all those things. And, uh, and p- people just have to live with that because they're stuck. How do you cope with a daily existence like that? I mean, how do you live with that omnipresent threat of uh, airstrikes and death, as well as, you know, as you described, just the incredible difficulty of uh, getting the necessities of life. Like, what do you see people doing and how do they handle that? I think you uh, mentioned a concept that I'm probably going to mispronounce called Samud. Yeah, so Samud is this concept that I used to think was a little bit overused by uh, NGO and uh, expat types in Palestine. It means resilience and it just refers to uh, 
the ability of Palestinians to just cope with uh, the hardships of uh, the occupation in the West Bank or the blockade uh, on Gaza. And it's just used very, very often. But during the war, uh, I felt like the word was really appropriate because uh, no matter what was happening, as soon as it was safe enough to do so, people would just adapt to the situations. People would get to a place and just find anything to create a shelter, to find uh, water or food, help each other out. At the end of the day, there's no choice. You know, like if bombs are falling, you have to try and go where bombs aren't falling. Mm -hmm. Except in Gaza, that's very complicated because it's a very small space and bombs are falling in a lot of places. And because telecommunications are also a hard thing, it's always hard to predict where will be the safest place. But regardless of all that, uh, people are able to just survive as best they can uh, using their ingenuity, uh, their creativity, helping each other out, building shelters out of wood, uh, pieces of metal, uh, anything uh, that can be used. Because everything is lacking, everything needs to be repurposed in one way or another to uh, cope with needs. We have a doctor in this hospital, Nasser, actually, uh, in um, Khan Yunis, uh, who mentioned that he was just looking for wood to create uh, beds out of hmm. for the hospital or crutches. You know, they're just out there uh, fighting what they can to make the things that they need. How did you and your team um, eventually get out and get to safety? So eventually, we had left a camp uh, in Rafa that we had been in for two weeks because things were getting a little bit uh, complicated there. It was the first uh, days of there not being quite enough food, so people were starting to get tense, uh, and things obviously have gotten much worse now. But anyways, we left this camp to go to an area called Al-Mawasi. It's uh, close to Rafa in the south of Gaza by the sea. We were ready to stay uh, for, you know, maybe um, several weeks because at this point we had no idea when we would be able to get out. But uh, one night we, we got the word uh, that we would be able to go. In my case, uh, I was just woken up from my sleep once again, the same way it started. I was woken up from my sleep by uh, our friend who was a French archaeologist, uh, René. Uh, who just woke up the surgeon who was sleeping uh, in the same room as me and said, Alexandre, let's go, uh, wake up, we're going. I just heard this uh, in my sleep and I, I thought, okay, this is the moment when we're going to go now. And uh, indeed, um, we, we all woke up uh, around 4 a.m. and we were told, okay, uh, there's a list of 400 people uh, who will be able to cross out of Gaza through the Rafa crossing into Egypt. And our names are on it, so we will try to uh, get to the crossing by 6 a.m. and cross. And then there was a whole long day. Uh, it was really uh, terrible saying bye to our Palestinian colleagues mm. at the border crossing who had to stay behind. Some of them have been able to leave since then, others uh, uh, have not. But anyways, at this time, at that point, we said goodbye to our colleagues, and also there were just thousands of people trying to exit through the Rafa crossing into Egypt, but there were only 400 names on the list. And it was the first of several lists. Um, eventually, like more people were able to leave, but almost always only the people who had another passport. So binationals, you know, like people who had like a Palestinian passport and a European passport or from any other country, really. <laughs> we were the first ones to be able to get out. It, it, it was a very long day and uh, very, very trying and also very sad because of all, the, all that we saw terms of people trying to get out but not be able to. Once you made it out and uh, returned, I guess, to whatever, uh, you know, semblance of, of normal life you could have with your colleagues, uh, so many of your colleagues still there, what did you think of 
the quality of information. I know we talked about uh, what kinds of things are missing from that discussion, but we've done an episode before on just like how unreliable so much of what we see uh, on social media is when it comes to this conflict. And I I imagine part of your job is to look at that and you must look at that flow of information and then the flow of information you're getting from people in the organization who are on the ground and like, how do they compare? There are so many things about Gaza out there, uh, about the war being said. Like I said, I think it would be better to be able to cover this more in depth. But since there are no not that many journalists running around uh, the enclave, it's not really possible for people to go beyond kind of the first news that come out. There are a lot of false things being said about the war in Gaza. There are a lot of things that are very um, bit manipulated to give uh, not necessarily the right image of what's going on in Gaza right now. But uh, there are some sources out there that are able to report at least on the basic facts. It's just the, the main problem is that with the blockade of Gaza, there's just not enough information uh, able to get out for people to be able to get like a good idea in detail of what it's like. Last question then, what do you think organizations, news organizations could be doing uh, to give people a better sense uh, of what's happening there? And, you know, I think everybody knows there's a ton of reporting on this. And to your point, it's it's a lot of uh, numbers and dire headlines. Um, what does the world need to understand about this that they're not getting right now? I think the world needs to realize that every part of the war at least uh, the humanitarian aspect of it, is connected, right? So you have the displacement, you have the shortages, you have the attacks on healthcare. All these things kind of come together and kind of compound one another to create like a really terrible situation for Gazans who have nowhere to go because they're stuck in this, uh, in this place. And it's, uh, I think if this was like, an, a, like a, a different conflict, you would have a lot of people reporting on this, on all the human stories, all the human tragedies happening in Gaza, but because nobody's able to get in or out, or at least not very many people, and particularly not journalists, mm -hmm. the, the facts that come out uh, about the war, I find them a little bit cold and uh, uh, kind of lacking uh, humanity uh, to kind of truly describe what is the situation like on the ground. So that's why it's very important for anybody who's able to get out of Gaza to really speak out in media, to uh, talk about what they saw because uh, there really aren't that many people who are able to get out to, uh, to witness all this. Well, thank you uh, very much for speaking to us about it and uh, hopefully others can as well. Uh, Louis, thank you again. Thank you, Jordan. Louis Baudouin Larman, Communications Manager for Palestine for Doctors Without Borders. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca you can also let us know what you think about this episode or any other or request an episode if you think you have a topic that we should look into. The way to do that is via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or with a phone call and a voicemail, which you can leave at 416-935-5935. The Big Story is in every single podcast player and every single smart speaker. All you got to do is ask those smart speakers to play the Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>